Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. On Capitol Hill, Democratic infighting appears to be threatening President Biden's domestic agenda. The president was scheduled to visit Chicago today. I'd have been part of that trip, but that has now been postponed. Now, he'll remain in Washington to work with lawmakers on a path forward for the $3.5 trillion reconciliation package, also called the Build Back Better Act and the bipartisan infrastructure deal. This comes as pressure is growing on the president to be more personally involved, to better define the stakes with Democratic lawmakers and try to bridge the gap between the progressives and moderates who right now not only find themselves far apart, but really find themselves not able to trust the other. That's the dilemma that Nancy Pelosi, the House Speaker, finds herself dealing with, caught between these progressives who want to enact ambitious social programs and the centrists who have balked at spending trillions of dollars. Pelosi sent a letter to her colleagues yesterday, calling it morally imperative for them to pass the act. But progressives are reiterating that they won't vote for the bipartisan infrastructure deal tomorrow unless the $3.5 trillion plan passes first. Senator Bernie Sanders urged House Democrats to vote against infrastructure until a deal is reached. My fear is that if the dual agreement that was reached is broken, and we just passed the infrastructure bill, the leverage that we have here in the Senate to pass the reconciliation bill will be largely gone. I think the one hope we have is to say, look, if you guys want to pass the infrastructure bill, I want to pass it. You want to pass that? You're going to have to deal with, infra- you're going to have to deal with reconciliation. You can't just keep slow walking this thing. The Democrats have work to be done. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell is publicly telling Democrats that they need to raise the debt ceiling. But he has blocked yet another pathway for them to do it. Yesterday, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer requested unanimous consent to bypass the 60-vote filibuster threshold. Schumer was looking to set up a simple majority vote to allow Democrats to suspend the debt limit by themselves. But McConnell objected. Democrats will not get bipartisan help borrowing money so they can immediately blow historic sums on a partisan taxing and spending spree. Democrat leader knew this request would fail. There is no chance, no chance, the Republican conference will go out of our way to help Democrats conserve their time and energy so they can resume ramming through partisan socialism as fast as possible. Of course, the debt limit isn't about future spending, but rather paying off what other presidents, including Republican President Trump, spent. Further complicating the process, the White House says President Biden opposes changing the Senate rules to raise that debt ceiling. Democrats have few options left as the deadline for default, catastrophic default, approaches, but they have ruled out using reconciliation. Schumer argues the process would take too long and they simply don't have enough time. We're not asking them to vote yes. If Republicans want to vote to not pay the debts they helped incur, They can all vote no. We're just asking Republicans, get out of the way. Get out of the way when you you are risking the full faith and credit of the United States to play a nasty political game. We can bring this to a resolution today. 
using the drawn-out and convoluted reconciliation process is far too risky. Far too risky. Meanwhile, during a Senate banking committee hearing yesterday, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen gave Congress a new deadline, warning of, indeed, catastrophic consequences if lawmakers fail to raise the debt limit in the next three weeks. It is imperative that Congress address the debt limit. If not, our current estimate is that Treasury will likely exhaust its extraordinary measures by October 18th. At that point, we expect Treasury would be left with very limited resources that would be depleted quickly. America would default for the first time in history. The full faith and credit of the United States would be impaired, and our country would likely face a financial crisis and economic re recession as a result. Joining us now, newly minted NBC News Capitol Hill correspondent, Ali Vitale. Ali, congratulations on the gig. Great to see you this morning, my friend. Thank you. Uh, here we are. Deadlines are approaching. September's nearly over. And House Democrats still don't have a deal on reconciliation. What happens now? What's the timeline? How can this get done? Do we still think something's going to happen in the next couple of days? Well, right now, theoretically, the House could vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill on Thursday. The open question, though, and this has been true for weeks, is whether or not that will pass. Progressive members of the House have continued to say they don't want to vote and they will not vote for that bipartisan infrastructure bill without the larger social spending bill already, at least in a framework or passed in the Senate. We also know, though, that Senator Bernie Sanders and other progressive senators have given them more cover on that. Sanders, as recently as yesterday, yesterday urged House progressives to vote no on the bipartisan bill because there has not been enough progress on the larger reconciliation bill. What's always been clear here, John, is that House Democrats and Senate Democrats, specifically one or two of them, are on very different timelines in terms of how quickly they want to move on this. Progressives now making clear they're willing to hold up the process because Senate Democrats like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema clearly don't have the push and the rush behind them to actually push these negotiations forward. Remember, Manchin has still not even laid out the top line number that he wants to get to here. It's kind of hard to figure out how to get where you're going when you don't even know where the destination is. And I think it sort of underscores the reality on the Hill right now, where you're dealing with a bunch of political crises, but they're different in nature. On infrastructure, it's a political and a policy crisis. I say crises in lowercase letters because it's one of Democrats' really own making. If they don't meet their deadlines on infrastructure, there's a political cost. There are the headlines about Democrats not being able to get their signature legislation through, but there's no real cost to anyone else. On the other side of this, though, and your introduction laid this out really well, there's a governing crisis happening because there are questions about deadlines. The government funding, for example, runs out at midnight on Thursday. Those are deadlines that if they are not met, Americans will feel that pain. I've covered government shutdowns in the past. I know that you have, too. The stat that a lot of politicians like right. to use about Americans not being able to meet an unexpected $500 request Government shutdowns are where the rubber meets the road on that statistic. It's something that Democrats have said that they want to avoid, whether it's fair or not on the debt ceiling and on government funding, they're likely to have to go it alone. Now, certainly there's been some pressure here on President Biden to be more personally involved with these talks. Yeah. Uh, at this point, he's mostly been listening. He hasn't really pushed them 
some in the party say, towards what he needs them to do. Uh, we know he canceled his trip to Chicago right. today. Uh, I think that's more about optics. Certainly the phones on Air Force One work. He could do some lobbying from the air uh, <laughs> on his way to this vaccine event. But they want him here. They want him to be able to play sort of a closer role. But we're also, of course, beyond their legislative agenda, we're just days from that shutdown, as you just mentioned. And with McConnell blocking every method Democrats have taken so far, what will the Democrats do? Can they bend and use reconciliation despite hearing that might take too long? What options do they have to keep the lights on? Well, look, in terms of government funding, which is the more immediate deadline here, they can go forward on a clean continuing resolution, a bill that would fund the government through a date of their choosing. It looks like it's going to be at some point in December. On the debt ceiling, though, it's a crisis that's a little bit further out, maybe 20 days away in Washington speak. That feels like an eternity. Nevertheless, though, what we've seen in the Senate is Majority Leader Schumer try to tell Republicans who have said they will not work with Democrats on raising or suspending the debt ceiling. We've seen Schumer say that he wants to go it alone. McConnell blocked the path that he could have done that through yesterday. McConnell wants them to use the reconciliation process. Democrats have said consistently, though, that's a non-starter. It'll take way too long. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. The National Institutes of Health is on the verge of concluding trials that mix boosters in initial doses from Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson. During a White House COVID briefing yesterday, Dr. Anthony Fauci says that data will be available within the next two weeks. The mix and match study in which you look at Moderna as the boost against the other three, those data are now available. The J&J as the boost for the other three likely will be available literally within a week, a few days to a week. And the data on looking at Pfizer as the boost to the other three will be available somewhere in the first week or at the most two of October. That's when the data will be available. Of course, as with all things we do, they must be submitted to the FDA for their regulatory approval. So far, 2.78 million Americans have received a booster dose since August 13th. Meanwhile, Pfizer took a major step towards receiving approval of its COVID vaccine for children ages 5 to 11. Submitting trial data to submitting trial data to the FDA for review after recently determining the vaccine safe and well tolerated. NBC News correspondent Gabe Gutierrez has the latest. With millions of children now back in classrooms, Pfizer submitted phase three data to the FDA on vaccines for five to 11 year olds, a crucial step toward emergency use authorization. It gives another barrier of protection for the little ones. Pfizer CEO with NBC's Craig Melvin, who asked him about even younger children under five. I believe in a couple of months, uh, we should be in a position to have uh, the date and then eventually submit before the end of the year. The 5 to 11-year-old children in Pfizer's trial were given two smaller doses of the vaccine than those given to those 12 and older. The company says the smaller doses produced antibody responses that were comparable to those seen in older people who received full doses. The vaccine also caused similar side effects to those seen in adults, including arm soreness and fatigue. Younger children are less apt to be infected, but We all know that there are children who become seriously ill. Perhaps nowhere has the debate over the future of the pandemic been so heated as in schools. We want 
where parents and administrators have clashed over mass mandates, bus driver shortages, and vaccine requirements. New York City announced that teachers and staff would have until the end of the week to get vaccinated after a federal appeals court greenlighted the mandate. I think they should get vaccinated. Our kids are in there, and uh, they have to be held accountable. Less than a quarter of Americans still haven't gotten a first shot, but confusion is mounting over who should get a third. The FDA has authorized the Pfizer booster for emergency use for certain Americans. In Charleston, West Virginia, Kitty Frazier got her booster. Didn't even feel it. Not Pfizer, but Moderna, which the FDA has said can be offered to the immunocompromised. Do you think this whole rollout of the boosters has been a little confusing? Uh, extremely confusing. In fact, when we, got, when we came in this morning and they said you can't have the Moderna because it has not yet been... Uh, approved, mm-hmm. as has the Pfizer, um, we got a little bit vexed mm-hmm. and thought, uh, well, we wasted a trip down here. Mm-hmm. But then um, when we said we were right. immunocompromised, they said we could have the shot. And as I reported last night for the Associated Press, the Pfizer dose for children, though there had been some hope it could be available by Halloween, likely November, but hopefully more towards the early to middle of the month, rather than waiting to Thanksgiving. We'll stay on that story. I know um, that I was very skeptical about it all, um, but after doing my research and things of that nature, I felt like it was best suited for not only me, but for my family and for my friends. And, uh, you know, and that's why I decided to do it. The NBA's push to vaccinate all of its players just got a huge boost. The sport's biggest star, LeBron James, revealing yesterday that he received the coronavirus vaccine after remaining silent on the issue for months. While the league-wide vaccination rate is believed to be around 90% in climbing, some top NBA players, including Washington's Bradley Beal and Golden State's Andrew Wiggins, have said they remain unvaccinated. And others, like Brooklyn's Kyrie Irving, have refused to divulge their vaccination status. Though Irving was not attending Nets Media Day in person on Monday, suggests he remains unvaccinated. The status of Wiggins and Irving is particularly of interest since local ordinances in San Francisco and New York City would require them to be vaccinated in order to play at home games, meaning they might miss half the schedule. Meanwhile, the NBA released tentative health and safety protocols to teams yesterday, detailing a slew of restrictions for unvaccinated players that will literally divide locker rooms. Among a draft of the rules obtained by my colleagues at the AP, unvaccinated players will not be able to eat in the same room with vaccinated teammates or staff, They must have lockers as far away from vaccinated players as possible, and they must stay masked and at least six feet away from all other attendees in any team meeting. There's going to be fascinating to watch that as the season begins in a few weeks. Turning now to Major League Baseball's wild push to the postseason, we begin in St. Louis, where after beating the Brewers 6-2 for a 17th win in a row, 17, the Cardinals clinch a National League wildcard berth. St. Louis, congrats to them. We'll play in the NL wildcard game on October 6th in either Los Angeles or San Francisco. Two games still separate the Dodgers from the Giants atop the NL West after both teams posted wins yesterday. Both teams have won over 100 games, yet one of them is going to have to play in a single elimination do-or-die game against the surging St. Louis Cardinals. Over in the American League wildcard race, the Red Sox suffered a dispiriting loss with their ace Chris Sale on the mound, dropped the opener of a three-game series to the lowly Orioles falling in Baltimore 4-2 last night in what is a devastating start to a crucial six-game road trip. In Toronto, 
the Yankees extended their lead over the Red Sox for the top spot in the wildcard race with a 7-2 victory over the Blue Jays. Meanwhile, the Seattle Mariners, who we have not paid enough attention to in our morning television here on MSNBC, they're closing in on this chase. They hopped Toronto in the wildcard standings with a 4-2 win over the A's last night. Seattle's been on a tremendous streak of late. They move within a half game of Boston for the second AL wildcard spot. Six days to go. Meanwhile, in Kansas City, Royal slugger Salvador Perez hit his 47th home run of the year, which puts him one off the club's single-season record. Perez now leads the league in home runs by one over Toronto's Vlad Guerrero Jr. and the Angels' Shohei Otani. Uh, he's two back. The Royals beat the Indians 6-4. to four. And finally, in Minnesota, a ball sent into the stands by Detroit's pitcher, Watch this again. Having already started his delivery when a timeout is called, Tigers lefty Tyler Alexander continues to pitch, continues his pitch to order to avoid potential injury. That's what the coaches tell you to do. And he launches the ball over the netting behind home plate and into the seats, giving one lucky fan an unexpected souvenir. That guy. The Twins beat the Tigers 3-2. to two. Time now for the weather. There are dark storm clouds over my head because of the Red Sox, Bill Karens. But why don't you tell us what the weather looks like for the rest of the country? fine. No, I mean, you have five games left against the Orioles and Nationals. I mean, what could go wrong? You'll be just They fine. lost the first one, Bill. We just played the highlights. <laughs> I, I, mean, I mean, they could not possibly lose four in a row <sighs> and then lose. They'll be fine. They'll be fine. Or they won't. All right, so let's get into this forecast. It's been gorgeous around so much of the country. A perfect transition from summer into fall. We do have a little bit of rain out there today, this morning. Some people have definitely been woken up in the middle of the night in areas of Texas in between San Antonio. Houston's getting drenched right now with a middle of the night thunderstorm. And some of those are passing down towards the coast near Victoria. So we have a couple areas of concern. All the rain this afternoon will move into Louisiana. We'll get hit and miss showers and storms in Mississippi. Have that umbrella handy with you also in the northern plains. You're finally cooling off in the Dakotas. And then as we go till tomorrow, we'll continue to see all the wet weather kind of in the middle of the country, hit and miss showers and storms. Heaviest rain will be in West Texas, up towards Dallas, also in Nebraska. Won't be horrible, but that's just the only, that's like the only bad weather on the weather map. Today, absolutely gorgeous in the Northeast, no problems at all. The Northwest looks pretty good. Still pretty warm in the Southeast and in the Midwest, but uh, it's a pretty nice looking weather map as we head towards the end of this week, Jonathan. So uh, enjoy it. Bill Karens, we all will try. Thank you so much. We'll see you soon. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Congressional hearings will continue today for three top defense officials regarding last month's U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. Joint Chiefs Chairman Mark Milley, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, and U.S. CENTCOM Commander Kenneth McKenzie will testify before the House Armed Services Committee this morning, after answering questions from the Senate Armed Services Committee yesterday. Though the focus of yesterday's hearings was supposed to be Afghanistan, Milley was also pressed about two phone calls with his Chinese counterpart that he made in the final months of the Trump administration. He reportedly made these calls without the former president's knowledge. Milley defended his actions yesterday, insisting that he followed protocol by keeping other top White House officials in the loop. These military-to-military communications at the highest level are critical to the security of the United States in order to deconflict military actions, manage crisis, and prevent war between great powers that are armed 
with the world's most deadliest weapons. The calls on 30 October and 8 January were coordinated before and after with Secretary Esper and Acting Secretary Miller's staffs. Shortly after my call ended with General Lee, I personally informed both Secretary of State Pompeo and White House Chief of Staff Meadows about the call, among other topics. At no time was I attempting to change or influence the process, usurp authority, or insert myself in the chain of command. Milley also amusingly admitted that he cooperated with a slew of books about President Trump. The defense officials also contradicted President Biden yesterday, who claimed last month that no top military advisors urged him to keep troops in Afghanistan. Your military advisors did not tell you, no, we should just keep 2,500 troops. It's been a stable situation for the last several years. We can do that. We can continue to do that. No, no one said that to me that I can recall. I won't share my personal recommendation to the president, but I will give you my honest opinion. And my honest opinion and view shaped my recommendation. I recommended that we maintain 2,500 troops in Afghanistan. I'm confident that the president heard all the recommendations and listened to them very thoughtfully. When later asked about the conflicting information, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki insisted yesterday that President Biden's comments were misconstrued. So did the president mislead the American public about the advice of his military advisors? The question asked by George Stephanopoulos was, but your top military advisors warned against withdrawing on this timeline. They wanted you to keep about 2,500 troops. The president said, no, they didn't. It was split. That, that wasn't true. That wasn't true. It was split. I think that's a pretty key part of that phrasing there. Later on, he, uh, George Stephanopoulos said, so no one told your military advisors did not tell you, quote, no, we should just keep 2,500 troops. It's been a stable situation for the last several years. We can do that. We can continue to do that. No, no one said that to me that I can recall. That was my colleague Zeke Miller with the question. And joining us now here on set, reporter for The Washington Post, Eugene Scott. Eugene, good morning. Thank you morning. so much for being here. So what do we make of that, the contradiction between these top military officials and the White House? What, hap- what happened, the drawdown from Afghanistan? It's not so surprising that members of the Pentagon wanted to keep a right. presence there. Uh, but talk to us about that. And just what are some of the other big takeaways from yesterday's hearing? Well, I think what many people want to know after uh, that hearing uh, after the press briefing is whether or not uh, Biden can be trusted to hear and listen to the advice of his top Pentagon leaders. Of course, the White House is saying that they did and that they do and they will continue to do it. But I don't think what a lot of people uh, seem to understand is that just because you may make a decision that differs uh, from maybe one individual doesn't mean that you're discarding their advice overall. Although we can expect those who've been critical of a president to nitpick at that. And that is what we saw a bit yesterday uh, from lawmakers on the right and likely we'll see today. So certainly we know President Biden well before he took office, was looking to move troops out of Afghanistan. That's a long-held position. In fact, he's told others he felt that President Obama, for instance, was sort of almost bullied by the Pentagon to keep those troops there, and he was going to be the one to bring it home. We saw General Milley there. Uh, certainly much was made out of his calls with the, uh, his counterpart in, in, in Beijing. Uh, should we expect today, as the action shifts to the House, that the House Republicans are going to stay on that particular topic? 
Yes, as, as well as uh, staying on the criticism that the generals uh, spent too much time talking to journalists about tell-all books, also concerns about whether or not uh, things can be stable without so many troops remaining on the ground, something that uh, the leaders made clear yesterday they don't know how can happen, uh, given that uh, the withdrawal has been complete. Yeah, we should note here that we encourage top military officials to cooperate with journalists. Uh, wanted to talk about, tell us a little bit more about another thing that happened in Afghanistan, the, the war's uh, fading days, was that drone strike uh, that came, that killed, that was meant to be uh, targeting ISIS-K uh, terrorists, later was uh, revealed to have been civilians. The Pentagon expressed a lot of regret. Uh, Ten people died, seven children. How much of a topic of conversation was that yesterday? Point. Uh, the generals made it very clear that they were deeply apologetic. They had bad uh, intelligence that allowed them to make a decision uh, that did not protect as many people as they hoped. And uh, we saw, you know, conservative lawmakers make it clear that they thought uh, that these poor decisions had very real consequences and, and feared that this could continue to happen uh, under this administration if di different uh, decisions moving forward aren't made. All right. The Washington Post, Eugene Scott, thank you so much for being here. Time now for something totally different. It's time to hide your credit cards. HomeGoods has launched an online store just in time for the holiday season. The off-price home decor retailer launched the online store yesterday, allowing customers to browse its extensive collection of affordable decor and more, including bedding and kitchen goods. But buyer beware, as any home goods shopper can tell you, you can't just leave with one thing. Amazon, meanwhile, is ushering in a new generation of at-home technology. The company introduced its newest venture named Astro, a robot on wheels for your home, during a company event yesterday. The small robot, inspired by science fiction movies and cartoons, is equipped with a large screen and camera attached to a wheel base. Astro can navigate its, around, navigate its way around the house and respond to commands. It's much in the same way that Amazon's Alexa does. This comes with wheels. This robot also comes with a much heftier price tag, about $1,000. For now, it's exclusively sold by invite only, but will be available to the public later this year. And I'm just gonna interject a note of caution about inviting robots into our homes. Better news, it's official. Dick Wolf's original Law & Order series, this, again, original Law & Order series, is returning to NBC after an 11-year hiatus. The beloved show ran for 20 years before abruptly ending in 2010. But the new 21st season plans to pick up right where the left off. No premiere date or cast has been announced, though some former Law & Order fan favorites are expected to return. And here is another long-awaited return. Skittles is bringing back an original flavor of the rainbow. The green Skittle will return to its lime flavor after eight long years. The candy's parent company, Mars Wrigley, announced that the flavor will return to the rainbow permanently. Lime was one of the original five flavors launched with the candy in 1979, but yet was replaced by green apple in 2013. We are bringing you all the hard-hitting news this morning. Democratic Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema visited the White House yesterday. The president spoke with Sinema in the morning, then separately with Manchin in the afternoon. Both senators have said the $3.5 trillion reconciliation package is too large and must be trimmed to win their support. But while much of the attention has been on Senator Manchin, a growing number of House Democrats are voicing concern about Senator Sinema, who actually made three different trips to the White House yesterday, meeting with staff as well. Three sources tell NBC News that during a closed-door caucus meeting yesterday, Congressman Ro Khanna of California stood to say the House doesn't have a two-senator problem, but a one-senator problem. Congressman Khanna later told NBC News, quote, 
We have one senator from a state President Biden carried from a state where her colleague is 100 percent on board, holding up the agenda of the entire House of the National Democratic Party. This senator refuses to even give a number. So here's my question, the congressman said. When is the Democratic Party going to tell a single senator it's time to get behind our president? It's time to get in line. Biden, of course, captured Arizona last year. White House officials, though, painted a slightly more optimistic picture of where cinema is, believing that she will eventually get there. But of course, right now, White House, Capitol Hill, everyone's posturing. It's hard to figure out exactly where the reality is. Someone who knows, though, is Democratic Congresswoman Debbie Dingell of Michigan, who is here. Good morning, Congressman. We're always so delighted when you can join us. Uh, let's start right there. Do you agree with your colleague on the problem in the Senate? And who would you say right now needs to, quote, get in line? And can the speaker get them there? So good morning, Jonathan. It's always good to see you. And even when I'm not on, I'm watching you. You start my day. Uh, Glad to hear it. I, look, I said that this was going to be a week from hell, and it is a week from hell. Uh, but I will also tell you that I, there is, I've been saying for weeks, as you know, failure's not an option. I will tell you Democrats are unified in failure's not an option. We've been having lots of discussion. People have lots of thoughts. I think if there's any failure, the White House is not having lots of discussions with House members or talking to most of them. And there's probably great confusion about what the president really wants the House to do. Uh, and I think that is becoming a larger and larger and larger complaint, as I heard that yesterday from Democratic members on all spectrums of the line. But I think people are trying to figure out how we're going to get. You, can, you have to have both bills. It is just very simple. You have to have both bills. Things that are in the bipartisan bill need what's in Build Back Better to even be completed, like removing, you know, the issue I'm really, one of the issues that I'm talking about this week is getting the lead out of all water pipes. Uh, pediatric uh, JAMA released a study showing that more than half the children in this country have measurable lead in their blood. Well, there's not enough money in the uh, bipartisan plan to get the lead out of all pipes, which is why we need the Build Back Better bill. And I could go through a list of a lot of things. And then there are things like child care, et cetera. And quite frankly, without some kind of structure in place, without an agreement, without, we need both bills. It's just that simple. The bipartisan bill will not pass without the Build Back Better uh, uh, agreement and bill. And I think that everybody has realized that this week, the votes simply aren't there for one bill without the other bill. So, Congressman, so let's talk about the timeline here. Do we anticipate that we're going to have a bill a vote tomorrow on one of these? Where do you think things how do things play out over the next couple of days? And you mentioned President Biden perhaps not doing enough outreach. And that's something that we have heard as well. There's been growing complaints that the president is more listening rather than sort of pushing to what say, like, look, this needs to get done. He, that there's a suggestion that he needs to play more of an active role in the, these negotiations to bring them over the finish line. What do you think? So I'm actually have been very candid about this, probably becoming more open about it and probably will not be popular today. But I've been saying for uh, almost two weeks that I felt, you know, they're like, whole. Oh, you hear about two senators all the time. You hear about a few House members and there were a lot of House members in between. You know, I threw a number 180 out of my head one day that are all care. They represent the constituencies. They're trying to figure out the right thing to do. They need to know exactly where the president stands and what the president wants them to do. And they're getting mixed signals depending who you talk to and what is it that he wants? What are his priorities? People are told, 
you're either, you know, you got to be with the president. Well, what is it that the president want? Can you, nobody can even answer that question. And I heard frontliners really uh, uh, very frustrated yesterday uh, expressing that uh, viewpoint. So I think that's a problem for the White House. Uh, I think that it's not just window dressing that he canceled that trip to Chicago. I think he's got to talk to more than two senators. Now, people want to know, okay, we're being held hostage by uh, a couple of senators. I want us all to work together. We will work together. Failure is not an option. We will get this figured out. Democrats cannot let the American people down. Now, what you will see today is a vote in the House, a simple, clean, uh, continuing resolution so we don't shut the government down. Uh, at the tomorrow night at midnight, which would both be the most irresponsible thing that you could do in the middle of a pandemic. And you will see another vote um, uh, to raise the debt ceiling. And Senator Mitch McConnell uh, saying you got to do this alone and go this alone, but then blocking every effort that's made to just get a simple vote done is irresponsible, puts it exactly on his hand. The market started to tank yesterday over some of what was happening. And I don't think any of us, Republicans or Democrats, should be playing games that are already affecting an economy that's impacted by the pandemic. It's irresponsible. Congressman, let's switch gears. And if you could briefly tell us a little bit about the legislation you introduced yesterday to hold educational institutions accountable for sexual assaults committed by staff and professors. Tell us a little bit about it. Oh, well, I think, you know, I unfortunately have two universities uh, that have had some very serious sexual harassment issues. In my district, then, I worked very closely with a number of the young gymnasts uh, at Michigan State University before people had ever really heard about the case. And I think Title IX needs to be strengthened. It's not just about what the Department of Education has as the authority to impact federal funding in Title IX, but I've met with many of uh, survivors from Michigan State several years ago, but it uh, both University of Michigan and Eastern University have had some issues. You sit in a meeting with 29 young women that are survivors and hear their stories. You know that there are patterns on college campuses. You know that people on campus heard it. People are told when they go and talk to somebody, it, something's got to happen. University's got to investigate these patterns and they've got to assume responsibility for these young people to be able to have a private conversation and be able to get help. Such important work. Congressman Debbie Diggle, thank you so much for being here. We'll have you back soon. Please keep watching. Earlier in the show, we asked, why are you awake? One viewer writes, I'm up way too early to see Bill Karen's perfect tie. It is well known that Bill is, has the best tie collection here in the mornings, puts Willie Geist to shame. Let's check the tape. Here it is. Let's see, strong tie. Look, look at that, spectacular, see? Best in the business. Sophie, meanwhile, shares a photo of her grandson, Wesley, which depicts how Mika must feel, wondering if it's safe to come on set when you, Joe, and Willie are talking about baseball. Uh, that is precisely accurate. The looks that she gives us uh, are priceless, is the word I'll choose. And then Karen emails, today we're taking our first graders panning for gemstones in the hills of Western North Carolina. If I find a diamond, I'm sleeping in tomorrow. Fair enough, Karen. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.